Dear Father, we thank you for the glorious opportunities you give us day by day to live in a world, although seriously tainted by sin, but a world in which we still see the glories of God. We see the majesty of the mountains and the snow and the, and the blue sky and the flowers and, and all that you have created. And Lord, we're so blessed, particularly to live in this part of the world in this day and age with a measure of freedom that we have, the opportunity to know you and to serve you. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you are faithful to us as we think of our lives day by day and we know how often we fail to live and to act as we know we ought. And yet, Lord, you're patient with us. You continue to gently move us along and to guide us and direct us. We're thankful that the word is freely in our hands to study and to learn from. And we ask that this morning, you will be our teacher again through the power of your Spirit, and that we will have insight into the Word of God, not just for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of living faithfully before you, of incorporating the Word into the very fiber of our being, that we might be more like Christ, who is our Savior. In his name, amen. Genesis chapter 25, reading at verse 12. Genesis chapter 25 reading beginning with verse 12. Now these are the records of the generation of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbil, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, Hadad and Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps, twelve princes according to their tribes. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. He settled in defiance of all his relatives, or some translations may have east of all his relatives. Last time we looked, we began to look at this particular passage, and we have noted, of course, now that Abraham has died, and he was the central figure in 25% of the book of Genesis. And we, we followed this man's life from the time that he left uh, Mesopotamia until the time that he died in near Hebron. Now the center shifts to Isaac. But another son, as we know well know, is Ishmael. And Ishmael is not to be totally ignored. We noted that he came and helped his uh, brother Isaac, his half-brother Isaac, bury his father. So we know there was contact. Somehow contact had been maintained over the many, many decades, even generations, that had passed from the time that Ishmael was forced to leave the camp there of his father and to move into the Sinai Desert with his mother. We know very little, bit, little about Ishmael, a lot more about Isaac, because the scripture goes on to give us considerable detail about Isaac, but very little about Ishmael. What we have primarily is what we just read here, particularly relative to his descendants. The 
Scripture focuses on the covenant people. The men and the women who would bring uh, into fulfillment the covenant that God had made with Abraham, who would ultimately bring into existence, that is genetically at least, uh, the line of Messiah. In this particular passage of Scripture, there are only two of the sons of Ishmael whose names will be repeated other than in 1 Chronicles, the first chapter. And uh, those two are Kedar and Nebaioth. And Nebaioth, we've noted, is the firstborn. About all that we can really determine about the sons of Ishmael is that they became the fathers of a portion, at least, of the Arabic nation, probably the north, more northerly of the Arabic peoples, were fathered by Ishmael's sons. Now, we will note that one name will continue to reoccur, and that's the name Kedar, K-E-D-A-R. You will find that the name Kedar shows up nine times in addition to the two, the one in Genesis 25 and the other in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, which is sort of a, a, a summary of much of the genealogy of Genesis. Nine times, additionally, will the, will the name Kedar show up? And the question is why? Why is it that Kedar seems to become the type name for all of the descendants of Ishmael? In other words, uh, whether the children are the sons of Adbeel or, or uh, Jeter or whoever it happens to be, they seem all to be ultimately summed up under the name Kedar. Um, it's possible, of course, that the tribe of Kedar became the most numerous. It's possible that it became politically, economically the dominant tribe. But we, we don't have any biblical record to that effect. And, of course, these were not people who maintained at least literature that has survived to, the de to our day, if they maintained literature at all. Therefore, we don't have any uh, other sources to, to show that to be so. It's possible that the name has survived because Kedar means swarthy or dark-skinned. So it could be that just they, they became type-named dark-skinned people, and thus the name Kedar was perpetuated for that reason. We cannot be sure, but that's a possibility. Let me read from the 21st chapter of Isaiah, which gives uh, an example of a later use of this name Kedar. Now we know that when Isaiah lived was about a millennium after the time we're talking about. <clears throat> so in the 21st chapter of Isaiah, beginning at verse 13, the oracle about Arabia. In the thickets of Arabia you must spend the night, O caravans of Dedanites. Bring water for the thirsty, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. Meet the fugitive with bread, for they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword and from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, in a year as a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate, and the remainder of the number of bowmen, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar, will be few, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken." It seems that even in this passage you have the Dedanites and the people of Tima also summed up under the term Kedar. 
And, and then also, if we look a little bit further over in Jeremiah, we have another reference in Jeremiah chapter 49 to the same term, Kedar. Jeremiah 49, uh, beginning at verse 28. Concerning Kedar and the kingdoms of Hatzor, which Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon defeated, thus says the Lord, Arise, go up to Kedar, and devastate the men of the east. They will take away their tents and their flocks. They will carry off for themselves their tent curtains, all their foods and their camels, and they will call out to one another terror on every side. What this is telling us is that the men of Kedar were individuals who lived in the east, which the Genesis passage tells us, and that they were possessors of flocks and specifically of camels, meaning, of course, that they were still a nomadic people. Now, the flocks that would be raised probably would include primarily sheep and goats, which was very common for the Bedouin to herd in ancient days as well as today. Uh, the sheep and the goats providing both the meat, the milk, the hides, and the, and the wool or the fur uh, to provide for them. And then the camels, of course, being primarily for bear, uh, beasts of burden and to ride. And the ancient men of Kedar rode camels, and they became very much like uh, most of us have probably seen uh, the film uh, Lawrence in Arabia or something else, and you've witnessed the, uh, a camel attack, <laughs> uh, a raid of, of men riding on camels. And camels can move very, very quickly uh, across, the, uh, across the desert. And they would use these to, to raid, just as in the old Wild West, bad guys used horses to carry out their raids. So the men of Kedar, the Dedanites, the others of the uh, desert often used camels to carry out their raids. And it, and it needs to be remembered that often the nomads, as I pointed out last time, not only were responsible people who raised their own animals for their own provision, often for amusement and for advancement, uh, they would attack more sedentary peoples. They would raid those territories and, and take away whatever they wanted, sometimes they would take away uh, the women and the children for slaves. Uh, they would take away the gold and the silver, whatever, whatever they wanted, because obviously life in the desert raising sheep can get pretty boring. And so uh, this provided a little excitement. Most of us are, are relatively familiar with some aspects of American history that involve North Africa and involve some of the people who are really distantly related to the ones we're talking about here. And, and these are the Berbers of North Africa who, as I say, are kind of distantly related, but nevertheless related to the people we're talking about here. And uh, you don't remember, of course, from, from living during the time, but reading in your history books, uh, back in the presidency of Thomas Jefferson, remember him? The uh, United States was at war with Libya. Ah. <laughs> it wasn't the first time we raided Libya when we bombed uh, Tripoli over there and uh, Gaddafi a, a few years back. But uh, we were at war with uh, Libya, only in those days it was simply called Tripoli. That's why the song, uh, the Marine song, is from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. As the American Marines raided Tripoli back in the, uh, well, first, well, it was really primarily 1815. But uh, the people who lived in Tripoli then were corsairs. That is, they primarily earned their living by raiding the shipping on the Mediterranean, although they raised crops and they raised animals also to make provision for themselves. Advancement came through raiding other ships. 
So this has been characteristic of the people of this, this great desert region. If you study uh, the world regionally, geographically, you'll discover that North Africa and Southwest Asia are tied together as a, as a single unit. And you study them together because the people of Southwest Asia and the people of North Africa are akin in many ways. They are ethnically akin, they're linguistically akin, they're religiously almost all Muslim, and, and there are many things that draw, uh, draw them together. And, and this characteristic uh, Bedouin lifestyle with the raiding be a, being considered a legitimate form of uh, economic advancement uh, is also characteristic historically for all of the peoples of this, this region. In, in the 18th verse of our Genesis 25 passage, we're told that uh, the descendants of Ishmael settled from Havilah to Shur. Now Shur is a kind of a semi-arid region in the northern part of the Sinai Desert. Havilah is part of the sandy wastelands in the northern part of the Arabian Peninsula. Now, most of us have looked at the Arabian Peninsula, and we know a whole lot more about it ever since Desert Storm than we ever knew before, it seems, because it's been brought to our attention. The Arabian Peninsula is uh, climatically almost totally arid, what they call a bee climate. And, uh, but all of it is not desert. Some parts of it are simply what we would call semi-desert, a steppe climate. And uh, there are certain regions which are sandy deserts, particularly down in the far southeast part, the Rubakali, uh, the empty quarter, which is a, a vast desert. Uh, and there are other smaller ones. Well, Havilah region up in the northern part is kind of a, a sandy, sandy semi-desert area, not totally uh, outside the scope, obviously, of human habitation. So they sort of lived in a strip east-west, uh, running from the Sinai over into the northern part of the Arabian Peninsula, apparently. And we're told in the, in the passage that uh, they were scattered along the inland route, apparently, that went from Egypt over into Mesopotamia and specifically to Assyria. How old was Ishmael when he died? 137 years of age. This means that he lived beyond the death of his father nearly half a century because he was close to 90 when Abraham died and now 47 years later he himself dies. Isaac was younger than Ishmael we know and so Isaac was probably somewhere in the 123 to 125 range at the time of the death of his half-brother, Ishmael. What is Ishmael's claim to fame? Well, Ishmael's really, only his, his only claim to fame is being the father of these 12 sons, who then are the ancestors of <clears throat> a major portion of the Arabic nation. And of course, they will ultimately be at odds with the children of Israel, and as we've already noted before, the Arabic peoples today claim descent from Abraham through Ishmael primarily. <coughs> In the last phrase of the 18th verse of Genesis 25, 
we have a strange, somewhat difficult to understand statement. It says, he settled in defiance of all his relatives. Who is the he? Well, the he uh, apparently is Ishmael. And it seems to refer back to Genesis 22, I, I mean 16, 12. Back in Genesis 16, 12, where we read re regarding Ishmael, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. And the word in the Hebrew is the same there as it is here, where it's translated defiance of all his brothers. So it's really difficult to know exactly what the meaning of the author, uh, what Moses' meaning was here as he recorded this. But it's probable that both meanings are involved here. We know that the descendants of Ishmael settled to the east of the land that we are concerned with, to the east of Israel, to the east of the northern Sinai. They settled out in the southern part of what would be called Jordan, the northern part of Arabia. We also know that uh, they have lived historically in defiance of just about everybody else in the neighborhood. They have been a warlike people ever since the beginning of time, it seems, the beginning of their time, at least. They have lived in isolation. They have primarily been responsible for major uh, caravan trades and ultimately even sea trade routes that would be established, but they have historically been a very warlike people. And they are not unwarlike today, as we are well aware. And it's only been, really, in the 20th century that there's been any unity on a large scale at all amongst the Arabic peoples. Oh, yes, there have been great empires. There have been the great empires that were established uh, by the descendants, uh, spiritual descendants of Muhammad. And you have the Umayyad and the Abbasid dynasties. Uh, but they quickly broke down into feuding groups. And when the Crusaders came to raid uh, the Holy Land and to try to take Jerusalem in the 11th century, one of the reasons they were successful in taking Jerusalem in the year 1099 was that the Arabic peoples, the Muslim people in the area, were in total disarray. And they were antagonistic to each other. The Sultan in Turkey was not friendly with the, with the Caliph of, of uh, Egypt. And, and the, the Caliph of Mosul hated the, the Sultan in Baghdad. And so it was. And as a result, the Crusaders uh, had an had a opportunity to get in there and to, for at least a short period of time, gain control of the city of Jerusalem. And, and so there's been this general disunity. But in the 20th century, of course, there has been created the Saudi Arabian nation. And, and the Arabic peoples of that nation have more or less been brought under the sovereignty of a single government. And, uh, but they, of course, in turn, aren't exactly totally friendly with all of their Arabic neighbors, are they? I mean, considering the fact that Saddam Hussein is a member of the Brotherhood, uh, and they haven't gotten along too well, we can understand thus the meaning of this. He settled in defiance of all his relatives. And they have been settled in defiance of all their relatives ever since. And so it might be. Of course, you can look around the world historically and say, well, this is probably true in many areas of the world, right? Have the Europeans always been 
just real good buddies with each other. Um, look even within the Teutonic nation, the Germanic nation. Uh, how many of the Germanic tribes massacred each other over and over again? Well, the whole empire of Charlemagne was built up by Germans conquering other Germans. So, uh, you know, this isn't a terribly unusual concept here of a, a nation bred out of conflict and warlikeness. Well, let's move on to the next uh, <clears throat> paragraph, beginning at verse 19, Genesis 25. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paden Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. The one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment and they named him Esau. And afterward his brother came forth with his hand holding to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. This is a very, very important passage. It's extremely important because it gives us information that enables us to understand the next few passages, a uh, few chapters actually, of Genesis. But it seems like we could have a problem right off reading it at face value and not stopping to analyze it uh, at all. We're told in this passage in uh, verse 20 that Rebekah was the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean and that she was the sister of Laban the Aramean, which later is translated Syrian. Now, from whom was Bethuel descended? His father was Nahor, and Nahor was whose brother? Abraham's brother. <clears throat> so Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, or Haran, were brothers. Who were they descended from, though? Were they descended from Aram? No, they were descended, if you go back to uh, the uh, earlier chapters in Genesis, they were descended from Arpachshad, who was a brother of Aram. They were both sons of Shem. So Arpachshad and Aram were brothers, sons of Shem. So why is this descendant of Arpachshad called an Aramean, as if he were a descendant from Aram? Well, the answer is given in the passage, because it says the Aramean of Paden Aram. And it seems that most probable here is the fact that he is called an Aramean because he was living in Aramea. Just like you and I may be called Americans because we live in America, although we may be descended from the French or the British or the Dutch or, or you know, the Oogaboogos or whoever we're descended from, we're all called Americans because that's where we're living. 
So I think the answer is that Bethuel is called an Aramean because he was living in Aramea, not because he was descended from Aram. Now, the word Paden Aram means the plain of Aram, the plain. We know that Abraham himself also lived there for a while because when he moved from Ur of the Chaldees, he moved up to Haran, and he lived there for a while until his father Terah died, and then he continued on his journey as God had called him down to Canaan. Now, where were Rebekah, Leah, and Rachel born? They were all born in Paden Aram. They were thus all Arameans in that sense of the term. And I think that's why you have a very, seems like a strange verse as you read it, first of all, in, in Deuteronomy. If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 26 and you read verse 5, And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, but there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. Now, that's a clear reference to Jacob. Uh, what is Jacob being called a wandering Aramean for? No, what, uh, how, why would he be called a Syrian? Well, after all, his wives were born in Paden Aram. His mother was born in Paden Aram. Uh, his uh, grandfather had been uh, lived in Paden Aram for a while. So this term sort of inherited down through the generations, causing Jacob to be referred to as a wandering, a nomadic Aramean, although he himself was not a descendant of Aram, Aram, Aram by bloodline. Now exactly where was Paden Aram? Well, we don't know exactly where it was, but we know approximately where it was. If you read through the book of Genesis, you will discover there is another term used in the book of Genesis for this area. It's called Aram Naharim, which means Aram between the rivers, sort of like an Aramaic Mesopotamia. In fact, sometimes it's translated Mesopotamia, which is what the word Mesopotamia means, right? Meso, the middle of, Potamia, rivers. This probably refers to the region that was located between the Euphrates River and the Kherbur River, as best as can be determined. And uh, that is a tributary to the Euphrates River that comes down out of Turkey onto the northern part of the Syrian plain and intercepts or uh, converges with the Euphrates River in what is today northern Syria, about 50 miles or so from the border with Turkey. So the region we're talking about today, if you can kind of turn your little mental computer to the modern map, is, is the region in the far north of Syria, only about 50 miles from the actual Turkish border today. So way up in that area, a uh, long ways actually from Canaan, was where Bethuel and Laban and Rebekah and Rachel and Leah all lived before the girls, at least, were brought down to live in Canaan. Is it not interesting, as we read this passage, to 
I mean, we went through this whole struggle with Sarah. And now as we come into this passage about the marriage of Rebekah, or the result of the marriage of Rebekah with Isaac, it says in verse 21 that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. We might say, what is wrong with this family? And as you know, it doesn't end here, does it? You move off to Rachel, and you have another situation in the next generation. Here we have Rebecca, who is barren, just as her great-aunt Sarah had been barren, and was able to conceive only through divine intervention, as had been true for Sarah. Do you get the feeling like God is controlling the situation, maybe? I think there is absolutely no doubt that as Rebecca lived with Isaac and Rebecca came to understand the family and she came to know Abraham and, and, and this whole thing, became, she became a literal part of this covenant family, that she was well aware of the covenant, of its meaning, of its importance, of the transmission of the covenant. She knew that the covenant was to pass through Isaac and that it was to pass through his offspring by her. And yet there were or there was no offspring. Now sometimes we have a tendency to make a mental leap here without stopping to think of what it must have been like on a day-by-day -day basis. Just as you and I live day by day, and we go through our struggles, we tend to leap from one spot to the other and, and, and not really look at it hourly or daily as they must have looked at it. Think about Isaac, and think about Rebekah, 20 years she was barren. 20 years no children came. Try as they may, no children. Can you imagine the frustration? Now we've already talked about the stigma that came upon a woman in that part of the world in those days for being barren. She was not looked upon as a whole woman until she could bring forth a child. Right or wrong, that's the way it was in that culture. Now, remember, the enemy was just as alive and well on planet Earth then <clears throat> as he is now. We have a tendency to think, I should say I have a tendency to think, of uh, the enemy as being more real today than he used to be. And that's not a true thought. It just he seems to be very manifest today in so many of the things we see around us. But think about it in this day. The population of the world was just a fraction of what it is today. Where would the enemy be? Is he ignorant of what's going on here? <laughs> Does he not know the promise of God? Oh, he knows the promise of God. Just as Satan was there in the, in the cave when, when, when Messiah was born, and he was there when Christ was whipped, and he was there when Christ was crucified, he's here. I believe Satan was dogging Isaac's heel. And he was saying, Look, you know it's not going to happen. Ishmael is the real one. No kids. Obviously, it can't be you who's supposed to be the inheritor of the covenant. It's got to be Ishmael. You've got it wrong, Isaac. Can you imagine? You know, that, that could have happened. That easily could have happened. And Isaac could have been hounded, and, and, and Rebekah too, 
by the enemy as he attempted to tempt them to believe that really Ishmael must have been because look at how many kids Ishmael has. He's got a dozen sons. Well, we don't know if he had all dozen by this time, but already he's had many kids, whatever the uh, order has been. Uh, and, and probably many daughters besides. And Isaac and Rebekah have not even a, a hope, it seems, in the flesh. If this thinking did enter Isaac's head, and I have no doubt but what it did, and Rebekah's too, they rejected it. Ultimately, they rejected it. Whether they succumbed to it momentarily and, and went through a few days or months or even years, I don't know, of, of dejection and depression, we're not told. But ultimately, they rejected it. And we know that because we read in this verse uh, 21 that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. He had hope. He had faith. He didn't just give up and roll over and remain defeated or become defeated. It was abundantly clear through Abraham that he was the son of promise. He was born miraculously and therefore he had to be the son of promise. And that's what he'd been taught ever since he was a child. And it was ingrained in him that he was the covenant bearer. bearer. And so he prayed. He trusted God. He had learned a couple of other truths along the way we trust, and it seems to be implied here. He had learned to wait patiently for God. After all, how long had Sarah remained barren? At least half a century. Now that's a long time. For those of us who have achieved half a century of life, it's a long time. And yet... They waited patiently. And even though we read the story of Abraham and it looks like they were a little impatient at times, God in Hebrews gives them credit for having faith to believe and being basically patient. Isn't it wonderful that God looks into the very center of our being, into our hearts, and he knows who we truly are, even though we, f we mess up, we, we have the wrong attitude this time, we say the wrong thing this time, we, we do the wrong thing at the stoplight or whatever, you know. And yet God knows our hearts, and that's what he looks at. Oh, it's not that he just forgets everything that we, we do. We, you know, we, we need to ask the Lord for forgiveness for the daily cleansing that we need. But he looks at our hearts, and he knows that basically we are his child, and we do want his good will to be accomplished. And he looked at Isaac, and he looked at Rebekah, and they were a man and a woman of faith. Secondly, I think that they had learned the lesson to not try to do God's work for God in your own strength. Because when Abraham and, and Sarah did it, they blew it royally. And that's why Ishmael was around, trying to take a surrogate uh, situation there. And, and then remember the story. Abraham said, oh God, oh, that Ishmael might be the inheritor of the covenant. And God said, no. You can't manipulate my plan. My plan will be carried out by me in my way, and you are a part of it, and this Ishmael will not be the inheritor of that. Certainly, Isaac and Rebekah had learned from that. Now, God preserves this record for us, doesn't he? Isaac and, and Rebekah had to learn it by hearing it from Abraham and Sarah. 
they had, well, Sarah wasn't around to tell it to Rebecca, but from Abraham and from Abraham to Isaac and Isaac to Rebecca, the story was told so that they could learn. But for us, it's recorded. It's in black and white. And we can read about it. And we can have understanding. That's why God has given us His Word. That we might not have to learn everything the hard way. That we can learn a few things by vicariously going through them, reading the story and, and understanding and learning the truth from that. It's been said that the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. I hope that's not true. It seems like it sometimes when you look at the course of nations. But hopefully, individually, we do learn. And we recognize through the struggles that others have been through what is the truth. And we avoid the error along the way. But God, of course, gives us his word also for an encouragement. To, to give us the faith we need to keep us focused on his plan and his purpose. Because sometimes it seems like things are not going well on planet Earth, and things are not going well in my life. And we might at that point become discouraged and think, well, you know, where is God really after all? Have I just, you know, just trumped this all up in my own being? Am I just imagining all of this? Or is God real? Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called I don't know if I can say the title exactly, but something like, God is here and he is not silent. I don't remember if that's exactly the title, but something like that. He's not silent, is he? Sometimes when we're down and we're depressed, we, we don't want to turn to this book. And I suppose that's our flesh. It's probably the enemy. But this is our hope. This is our source. This is the, the, what's going to put us back on our feet. Because this is where God is telling us, I'm in charge and I will bring about my perfect plan, come literally hell or high water, I will bring it about. And so it would be for Isaac and Rebekah. So what does Isaac do? Does he wring his hands in despair and say to Rebekah, oh, let's find a concubine? Or No. He says, let's pray. Now, did he pray for 20 years? Why not? Did God, was God deaf for 19 years? I don't think so. Isaac went to the Lord on behalf of his wife, Rebekah, beseeched the Lord that she might be fruitful, that her barrenness might be removed from her, and that the promise of God would be fulfilled, and that the covenant would be carried on by another child of promise in accordance to the will that God had expressed through Abraham. Why did God take 20 years to answer this prayer? Why did God drag it out for 20 years? Why didn't Rebecca become pregnant you know, right off the first year? Well, obviously we can't know the answers to all of the answers to that, but I think at least a couple of answers may rise up here. And one is, it may have taken that long for Isaac to develop the necessary personal relationship with God to become the covenant bearer. Remember, he was under the shadow of his father. He lived in the sh long shadow of Abraham. And he is 40 before he gets married. And it could very well be that 
finally, in, ex, finally establishing an independent household, becoming responsible on his own, that he begins to walk with God in a personal faith, not just the hand-me-down faith of his father Abraham. If he is going to be the transmitter of the covenant, he must be a covenant man. We, we've heard the old adage that God has no grandchildren, meaning that every single person must become a born-again believer himself or herself with a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship to God, a personal child of God, not the child of a child of God. We also know that faith does not come through osmosis. By rubbing up next to somebody who's a believer, it kind of rubs off on you. Unfortunately, there's an awful lot of that in America. Many people who believe because they were born in a home where the people went to church and, and paid uh, uh, honor to God from time to time that obviously they are Christians. And they have no idea of what it means to have a personal walking relationship with God himself. And I think that it's very possible it took 20 years for Isaac and maybe Rebecca too to come to that place because you will notice in, in the passage that when Rebecca does become pregnant and she starts having problems in her pregnancy, she goes herself to the Lord. So obviously she has come to the place of believing in a personal God who hears her prayer and speaks with her. And God honors that faith and does exactly that. He needed to be able to stand before God in his own right, in his own relationship, before the fulfillment of the promise could come. I think that's one answer. I think another answer is that it was a trial of faith. Whose faith? Certainly Isaac's faith, Rebecca's faith, but I think also Abraham's faith. He's still around. Oh yes, we, we knocked him off here in the early part of the chapter, but he's not dead yet in, in the count we're reading here. He's still alive. The Bible has the habit of doing that, as you well know. Uh, it doesn't perfectly go chronologically. And, and we're going back now before Abraham's death as, as we're talking here about this uh, prayer that Isaac prays on behalf of his wife. Now, Abraham had many descendants. He had all the sons of Keturah, he had Ishmael, and Ishmael had already given him 12 sons, and Ishmael's sons had sons. I mean, he was a great-grandfather, probably. And so it could have been a test of Abraham further. Oh, Lord, didn't I hear you right? <laughs> that the event on top of Mount Moriah seemed so clear to me. And yet, it's Ishmael who has such a great, <laughs> prolific family. And so I think this was a stretching further of Abraham's faith. I mean, God didn't... Abraham couldn't just retire. Say, well, Lord, I've been through it now. I'm just going to spend my last 30 years uh, on the backside of the desert raising sheep and, and kids. No, you're still in the process, Abraham. I still have a plan for you. You're still part of it. And I'm going to stretch your faith a little bit further. And part of the greatness of Abraham is that he went through so many faith-stretching experiences, and he becomes thus a great example to us of someone who goes through the great trials and yet continues to be a man of faith. He's about 160 at this time. And uh, yet no child who could be called the son of promise beyond Isaac is yet to be born. Now, he couldn't turn to James 1 as we can, 
But certainly he had learned the truth of that by now and was continuing to learn it throughout his life. And we've read this passage many times where James, in the midst of the trials faced by the new church after the death of Christ, says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, when he says that, he doesn't mean you should go out and buy helium field balloons and throw a big party and, and, and you know, dance around that you're having trials and tribulations. But he means that we don't go around and, and dive into the slough of despond. No? We don't stick, sink into this quicksand up to our nose. Because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Obviously, perfect doesn't mean perfect as we often use it, but as it further defined, they're complete. We're, we're more complete in the Lord. As we walk through the trials of life and as we come out the other side with victory, we know more fully the God who has called us to be his child. We understand more of his nature. And, you know, it's been so well put in that little poem everybody has on their wall or someplace about footprints, right? And uh, the fact that the footprints of God and you go along through the sand and then for a while through a really hard time there's only one set of footprints and the person says, oh God, why did you abandon me? And he says, I didn't abandon you. Those are my footprints. I carried you. And we, we just need to always remember that. Now, God doesn't berate us if we get a little down through hard times, because Abraham and Sarah certainly were down. I mean, so far down that, a, that Sarah says, here, have Hagar, and let's see if we can't do it this way. I mean, that's not only down, that's, that's walking off on another path. And yet God considered them faithful, even through all of that. And God brought his perfect plan into action. And so God is working here. Abraham, you know, white beard probably down to his knees and the staff, you know, the whole thing that we, we commonly picture here. Still going through it. God's still building his faith. Well, what's the old adage? While there's life, there's hope. While there's, while there's still fire in the boiler, there's still fires of trial, it seems, that come along with it. Whatever the reason, Isaac finally successfully interceded for Rebekah, for himself, and God responds. God did not have a deaf ear for 20 years. God heard their prayers. God just said, it's coming. Hang on. Now, they, didn't, they didn't hear him say that. But that's what God was saying. Isaac's prayer is uh, certainly a wonderful prayer for us to uh, be reminded of. Uh, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Isaac prayed in humility. Isaac prayed in great sincerity. And he was praying according to the promise of God. After all, I'm the son of promise, and through me the covenant is to be perpetuated. Thus, there must be a son. He knew he was praying in accordance with God's will. And, and this, to me, is another reminder 
as we're given so many reminders in, in Scripture of what prayer is all about. You know, we struggle with prayer. Sometimes we pray and it seems like nothing happens. And it seems like we pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and years go by and still nothing happens. And yet when we look at this, we have to know God hears and God responds. And Isaac was a man who gives us a wonderful example of some of the basics of prayer. Now I've listed on your outline just four things. That is, of course, as you well know, not a complete list of, or any such thing of what all is involved in prayer. But I think some of the very basic things given here are very, very important. First of all, for prayer to be true prayer that God will respond to, it must, be it must be prayed sincerely and it must be prayed by an obedient man or woman of God. Let me turn back to where else but James who says so much about prayer. James chapter 5 verse 16. Now, obviously, it's said within a certain context, but I think the principles of verse 16 are, don't have to do only, as sometimes they are interpreted, uh, having to do with illness. Therefore, confess your sins one to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Prayer needs to be prayed sincerely. I mean, we really are, to use the Old uh, Testament concept, grabbing onto the horns of the altar. We're really praying for one another, sincerely. It's not out of obligation. It's not trite. It's not, well, I've got to do it because, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the church and they have a need, so I've got to do it. It's because we really want to pray and care to pray for that person in this particular need. I didn't uh, put this on your outline, but uh, also in 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, I think we have an important aspect of this. 1 John 3, 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive of him, because why? We keep his commandments, and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. We have what we ask of him because we are obedient. Disobedient people can't go before God in confidence that God will hear and answer that prayer. Now, God in his sovereignty sometimes does some wondrous things. I mean, he's even heard prayers of unregenerate people. I mean, prayers other than prayers for their own salvation, it seems. But the principle of Scripture seems to be that we must pray sincerely and we must pray as obedient people. That doesn't mean perfect, sinless people who've walked for a whole week without even uh, committing the slightest little sin. It means that in our hearts, our desire is towards him and we're constantly... Uh, using the, the scrub brush of 1 John 1, 9, if you want uh, to use that kind of concept, uh, confessing our sin that we might be clean before him. And then also in James, we're taught the principle of faith elsewhere, too, obviously. 
but in James, the first chapter, verses 6 to 8. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The context, of course, is a prayer for wisdom. But whether it be wisdom or whatever it might be, we must ask in faith. Now, that doesn't mean we ask absolutely knowing that at this moment, in this place, God's going to do this thing. But our faith is in God to do what is right and good for you, for me, for this situation, according to his plan, in his timing, for his purpose. That's the faith we have. Now, there are some who come on the radio or the television and tell you, the reason you're still sick is because you don't have any faith. Well, you know, if you go to God in prayer in the first place, that is an expression of faith. Otherwise, you would never go to God in prayer, would you? If I had no belief that God would hear me or answer, would I bother? No, I wouldn't bother. Most people don't bother. But the fact that I pray is an expression of faith, and the Scripture teaches us if we have faith even as a grain of what? Mustard seed. That we can say to this mountain that it shall be removed. We were talking, my wife and I were talking the other day as we were driving past Mount Shasta, and it was out in all its glory. It was so gorgeous that we need, was it, who was it? Was it we were talking about that? We should pray with a grain of mustard so and get that thing transferred into heaven so we won't be without it, you know? <laughs> but we decided probably God has more wondrous things than that in heaven. Thirdly, prayer must be prayed with humility. James 4, 7, Submit therefore to God, Resist the devil, and he might think about leaving. No, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will think about drawing near to you. No, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weak. Let your laughter, your worldly pleasures be turned into mourning. Let your joy to gloom, to repentance. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. To me, this little passage in James is a powerful key to effective prayer. Resisting the enemy, humbling ourselves before God, having the correct understanding of what life is all about. And if I'm praying to God that I might have six Cadillacs in my garage rather than just five, I might as well forget it, you know, because that's not exactly letting my laughter be turned into mourning. I'm, I'm pursuing worldly pleasures. And elsewhere, God says, if you're asking for things simply to consume it upon your lusts, forget it. We must ask in humility, and I think that involves patience. That involves being patient for God. Because if we're impatient, there is something unhumble about being impatient towards God. God, I want it, and I want it now. You know, that doesn't sound real humble. We say, Lord, please do this in your time, in your place, as you will. And then lastly, prayer has to be in accordance with God's will. And in 1 John chapter 5, we have that classic statement, 
in verse 14 and 15, And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Now, there are a lot of other teachings in Scripture relative to prayer. But I believe that these are at least four or five really basic concepts that have got to be employed for prayer to really be what God wants it to be, to be God's vehicle for bringing about his plan and his purpose. And this, I think, we see in Isaac's prayer. Does that mean the answer will come quickly or easily? Not necessarily. It took 20 years. Did it come easily? No, as we read, it was not easy. Rebecca really suffered during this pregnancy, so much so that she went to the Lord to say, what is going on? <laughs> you know. Now, she had never been pregnant before, so she couldn't have known intimately what pregnancy was like, but she had seen many pregnancies before, certainly, and she recognized that hers was a lot more difficult. There was a war going on inside her, and she didn't know what was going on there. And that is such a fascinating thing to think about. Uh, and it, it's really relevant to this whole concept today of abortion. Uh, you, you, know, you think about this, and, and just, you know, you've got two, two blobs of tissue in here kind of banging around on each other. Why? Well, it's because they aren't blobs of tissue, right? They're nations. Nations, embryonic nations, and God ha has his hand on them from the instant of conception. And that teaches us a whole lot, and we'll look a little bit at that uh, next week.